0: Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Joe Lample is the man and the gardener behind the beloved Joe Gardner Show and Growing a Greener World on PBS. Growing a Greener World is not just a show name, but a nearly lifelong mission. In our ongoing exploration into who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they are growing in this world, including growing us. Joe Lample, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Jennifer,
1: thank you so much. uh, It's kind of surreal to hear you do that introduction because I've listened to that Every week, you know you you modify it a little bit, and I love you for that. But to know that you're about to introduce me uh, is is an honor and a pleasure. So thank you for having me.
0: Ah, oh, well, likewise, it is an honor to have you on. And you know, there are so many ways that people perceive us and know us, and titles that we we are given. I would love to have you. Uh, reintroduce yourself and share with people how you think of yourself in terms of being a gardener and what plants mean to you in your life right now, Joe.
1: Mm. Okay. So introduction wise, I often introduce myself as, uh, this is Joe Lample, the Joe behind Joe Gardner, because many people think Joe Gardener is my real name, which is fine. But it's not. It's just the kind of the brand and what what has evolved from many years ago. And I like that. but mm-hmm. um Jennifer, I would say that, um, yes, i'm I'm absolutely a lifelong passionate gardener.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I also, I think, am a teacher and I and I attribute my mother for that, a dedicated, devoted high school teacher, maybe mm-hmm. the smartest woman I've ever known mm-hmm. and And I'm thankful that I think I've got some of her teaching genes in me. and um, I use that to help, you know, spread the gospel of gardening, really. And so teacher, gardener, content creator, nature lover, father, husband, organic gardener, reverence for this earth and on a quest to help people understand that we have a responsibility to hopefully make this world and leave this world a little better off than we found it. and now more than ever. So I think my quest is that and and who I am is somebody that is a messenger for that, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. a
0: dedicated a dedicated messenger and mm. I think anybody who knows your work also knows that it is a joyful responsibility that we take on in these roles. And I also love, let me just go back to that, the idea that um, of the the layers, the sort of double entendre of Joe mm. Gardner, right? Is mm, that we yeah. are all Joe Gardeners yes. in, in our way, you know, no matter who I am or you are, like when you become a gardener, you become a gardener. And it's, it's a mantle uh, that anybody can decide to cultivate. And we hope more and more people do uh, for the better and better.
1: Thank you, Jennifer, for noting that. I, I have to say, uh, not many people catch that, but mm. if you look at the brand uh, in the logo, Joe Gardner is all lowercase by design. Right. And it creates quite a bit of confusion for the, you know, the, when you're dealing with the, you know, the typewritten context of what's right and what's wrong when, you know, you're whatever. But still, that is exactly the essence of why mm-hmm. Joe Gardner is lowercase is that it's not a proper pronoun. It's a noun to describe how you just said it. So yeah. thank you.
0: Good, good. Yeah. So before we get into the evolution of your mission, your quest, your your work under this uh, name and title, I want to go back a little bit, as you know, this is what I always do, and I love <laughs> I love this question because it brings out so many different things for different people. but you've you've already taken us there a little bit. And there are a couple of sort of famous iconic stories for how Joe Lample became Joe Gardner. But I want you to take us back a little bit, Joe. Where were you born and raised, and including your your mother, uh, the very intelligent and impassioned educator, who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a man for whom this educational and mission-based work would be who you are?
1: Wow. Love that question. Okay, let's start with people. Um, you know, my parents, it's interesting, a lot of times when we ask that question of others, they had a family member, typically a mother, a grandparent that kind of inspired them and nurtured them. In my case, my parents definitely were cheerleaders and supporters, but they were not gardeners. Although my father, I call him a weekend warrior. So I attribute one of my big aha moments, in fact, to being out with my dad, the weekend warrior, while he was mowing the grass and edging the driveway and pruning the shrubs. And as the youngest of four boys growing up in Miami, Florida, Uh, my next oldest brother was five years older than me. So at the time that I think I had my aha moment, I was eight, According uh, as best I can determine, I was about eight. So that would put my brother at 13. And he's not hanging out with his eight-year-old little brother. He's off doing his thing with his buddy. So I had my dad. And thankfully, so it was just dad and me time on the weekends. And this one Saturday, I, as always, would follow him around the yard and do whatever he needed me to do. But at the end of that one day, he had finished up his work. And I had uh, had lots of energy still in me and I was running around and broke a branch uh, on one of the shrubs he just got through pruning Mm. and did not know what to do. I did not want to get in trouble, although my dad was probably (laughs) the kindest man on the face of the earth. Nothing would have happened, but still, I didn't want to disappoint him, I think. So not knowing what to do with that broken branch that he'd worked so hard on, I stuck it in the ground right at the base of the parent plant Mm. and covered my tracks, literally you know, put soil up around it. And uh, and went about my business and probably, I guess, maybe eight to 10 weeks later, I just happened upon that area again and realized that's where that broken branch was or was supposed to be, but I couldn't find it. And it was apparently... The right where I left it and what had happened in the meantime in Miami where everything grows because <laughs> it's warm and sunny and you get rain and it rooted, that cutting had rooted. And so new growth was coming from it. And I looked at that and I could not believe what I was seeing. I mean, it was that literally that aha moment. <laughs> and I, I truly say that was when I feel like I was hooked on horticulture. So, yeah. As far as people, they were very supportive because because from that moment on, I I never slowed down. I needed to know why that happened, how that happened. How can I make that happen again? And so, you know, game on. I did not slow down and every day was a little busier than the day before. And with the support of my parents, here I am today. So it's been amazing. So people-wise there, yes.
0: And I just want to point out before you move to other plants or or places that you want to add to this early influence uh, question, the biblical nature of this message coming to you in a bush, and not a burning bush, but a, a rooted bush <laughs> right. I, I also want to point out, though, that not everybody might have the same reaction you had. And so somewhere you were modeled a respect for the living nature of this shrub that to break its branch you was like not necessarily a good thing and that your dad might worry about it or you felt badly about it and so your instinct to put it back in the soil like i love that joe it's so it just speaks to our instincts as humans in relationship to these other living beings and you already had an understanding of how it was supposed to grow and you did the right thing by accident, kind of.
1: Oh, wow. Um, this is true. And it's just made me realize that, yeah, I think all my life it's been that way. And I have a reverence for life, and no matter what it is, plant, people, animals, it doesn't matter, uh, spiders, you know, mm-hmm. you name it. But... Um, Interesting that you pointed that out, but yes, you're exactly right.
0: Yeah. All right. So other plants, other places that grew you into who yeah. you are. Keep keep us going on this, Joe.
1: Yeah, I I do. You know, I said that I didn't have any family members that were gardeners, but I do want to give credit to my great uncle, my dad's uncle, I guess, who lived with a uh, within a bike ride's distance of our house, and I think this happened around the same time because one Saturday, my dad got a call from my great uncle who needed a little help around the yard on that, that day. And, and my dad volunteered me. And so I got on my bike and I rode a few blocks up the road to uncle Ray's place. And, uh, you know, we did a little cleanup, but unbeknownst to me at the time, he, he, I think was the gardener in my life. If I had to name one, he was a big propagator of, um, staghorn ferns for those who, who, hmm. Do you know, Jennifer? Oh, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had a front yard of live oaks. You know, down in in the Miami area, you've got these huge, giant oak trees with a low-hanging, broad-reaching horizontal branches. And from those branches all over his front yard, he had hanging baskets of these majestic, large staghorn ferns. And this day he was propagating more of those. He was, he was removing pups is what they're called. Uh, and those go into new baskets with sphagnum moss. And next thing you know, a few weeks later, you've got, you know, another big basket of staghorn ferns. So again, I I was wide-eyed at watching what was happening here and, and in awe of these massive ferns underneath these beautiful oak trees. And he could, he picked up on that and he said, Joe. Actually, when I was young, I was, my mother called me Jody. So everybody in my close inner circle called me Jody, but I decided I was too much of a man for that when I got into seventh grade. So I changed my name to Joe, but I digress. Anyway, he saw that in me and he sent me home with my own pup and my own Mm -hmm. basket and a supply Mm -hmm. of sphagnum moss. And I started my own staghorn firm nursery. Oh, (laughs) that's great. yeah, Yeah. So it was pretty wild.
0: Well, for anybody who doesn't know what they are, we will definitely include some pictures of Joe's staghorn ferns if you still have them or or old ones. But yeah. I remember my mother in her South Carolina garden having a just a fantastic specimen in her outdoor shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lived on a, a saltwater marsh, and um, and I have lived in in dry, hot. But dry environments most of my adult life, Joe. And so yeah. without the humidity, they just aren't as happy. But oh my <laughs> right. gosh, they are so evocative of that yes. exact environment. Yes. Um, okay, so keep keep going, you uncle and okay. Ben. Yeah, and
1: in fact, I had so many, Jennifer, uh, in a short period of time that uh I guess this is the future businessman in me. Mm-hmm. I I offered to lease. Ten of them to my mother <laughs> to hang in in our screened-in patio pool area. For uh, I, I wrote a lease. <laughs> I don't even know if I knew what a lease was, but I wrote this contract and I offered to lease her the saghorn ferns for ten dollars. For a period of 100 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God, Good love deal. your mother. Right.
1: Win-win. Yeah. Well, ten dollars to me was a lot. A lot at that time. Right. Right. And it was a sweet deal for her. Yeah.
0: That's so that great. was
1: that was that. Yeah. But so, places South Miami uh, was was the breeding ground for a lot of my my growing and gardening and um, yeah. I live close to a nursery, and I I was. <laughs> Jennifer, I did not discriminate on the plants that I was growing. I had to, I had to grow everything because I wanted to know more and I wanted to know how everything grew. So I was starting petunia seeds and clay pots on the patio. I rode my bike up to the nursery two blocks away and bought rose bushes. I planted a pack of pole bean seeds under my parents' bedroom window. And uh, you know, I was I was making more cuttings this time, though I wasn't breaking them off of plants. I realized I needed to cut them. Somebody clued me in <laughs> on that. And so I was making cuttings and just, and and then started a little nursery at the church plant sale and bazaars or whatever those things were. And, um, you know, it just, it just progressed. I, I had to know more and I, and I just never slowed down and, and that was the beauty of it. There was always more to learn and there still is.
0: Still is right. I mean, we we've been gardening our whole lives, and um, and the joy is still with us, and the magic of being able to gently and carefully cut a cutting so that it is prepared nicely for a rooting. But and you know, one of the things I also love, and and your story is demonstrating this, is that if you pay attention. The plants actually teach you what to do, right? Like they oh. lay a branch down and they they create a cutting of themselves in many ways. And you're like, oh, wait, I could do that too. And that's pretty fun. Jennifer, I it's amazing you just said that because earlier
1: in when we started this conversation, you asked me about the importance of plants to me, basically is what you said. And when you said that, I started thinking about how, How many ways plants model lessons that we can take from them in our lives from birth to death and dying and the struggles to survive and the resiliency along the way. And what you said, paying attention because it's right in front of us. And and I feel for those who do pay attention and understand the signs that the plants give us, for example, we've heard the term a million times, right plant, right place, When we put a plant in the area where its DNA says it's happy, it's growing, it generally thrives. The DNA is there for that to happen, and it shows us that. But when we put a plant in an area that it is not happy, just like human beings, when they are in a place they're not happy, we don't thrive. But the difference is we can get up and move if we have the opportunity. Plants cannot cannot do that, but there is a lot of information there that shows us their resiliency in spite of the fact that they're they're not in a healthy environment then on top of that when we do foster that environment how those plants thrive i mean when we create an environment where the nutrients become available and we provide water and sunlight and fresh air how happy
0: are those plants just as
1: people can be as well
0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Joe Lample is the human behind the beautifully named double entendre Joe Gardner show, an organic gardening podcast. He is also the creator and host of Growing a Greener World, a longtime award-winning public television program. We'll be back for more with Joe. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. I would also like to acknowledge gratitude for a recent gift from Ground Studio Gives, making Cultivating Place possible and supporting all of our interconnections. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I'm back from an amazing and great garden week in New York City. I'm still a little starry-eyed from the number of gardening humans and gardened places, new and old, small and large. I had the great fortune of meeting, speaking with, walking with, and of course, plant nerding out with. You'll hear more about all of this in the coming weeks, to be sure. But for now, listen up, Northern California plant and garden friends. For now, I am really looking forward to meeting up with many of you on October 12th at the Women's Club in Chico, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at an NSPR-hosted book reading and signing for the launch of What We Sow. If you would like to join us on October 12th from 7 to 8:30, please head over to cultivatingplace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab to this week's show notes there. Scroll down in the post about this conversation with Joe Lample, all the way to the Thinking Out Loud section and click on the Events Bright link there to RSVP to the What We Sow reception and community gathering. The event is free and will be great fun with good food and drink but space is limited hoping to connect with so many of you there if you can't make that evening of what we sow camaraderie on october 12th at the women's club in chico i am also doing a book signing at the barnes and noble in chico the afternoon of saturday october 14th so maybe we can catch up then In any event, I am so happy to be sowing the messages of this new book out in the world. Thank every one of you for your support and encouragement. Hoping to see you on the 12th or the 14th if you live in my listening area. We're back now to our conversation with the inimitable and generous garden guru, Joe Lample, of the Organic Gardening Joe Gardener Show, joining us today from his home garden just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. But Joe can help us grow no matter where we live. As we come back, Joe continues to take us on his own growing journey from being a young man impressed and awed, in fact, by being able to sprout a new shrub from a cutting and into his career in horticulture and communication.
1: Yeah, time for the real world. You know, I'm not a kid anymore. And you're coming out of college. And thank goodness my mother encouraged me to pursue a a business degree. You know, I was all about, you know, just one singly minded thing in horticulture. And my mother, as I said before, was very supportive of that. But she also recognized at that time when I did not, that coming out of college, the options for what I may do as a future career that may actually pay the bills (laughs) was, was coming out with a business degree. And so I had some, I had a finance background in computer and horticulture training, but the, the recruiters were certainly more interested in the, the business side of things. And so my first job out of college was a suit and tie job. And, and I'm telling you what, I was not cut out for that. I, I was okay at it. I did a pretty good job. Um, but I knew in my heart of hearts. That was a stepping stone until I could find that opportunity where I could be outside and with plants uh forevermore. And and I I didn't know what that job was going to be, but I f- always felt like it was going to find me. As long as I was open and listening and paying attention, our paths were going to cross. But it took longer than I thought for that real opportunity to step away from a by then a a pretty lucrative situation. I'd work my way into to step away and and pursue horticulture full time 20 something years ago, 30 years ago.
0: I love this because I think this is an important thing for people, especially young people or people changing careers, to to hear that, you know, you were the right plantsman in the wrong place, but you understood that you you were gonna go to a plant-based place eventually, but you had to kind of pay your dues to set yourself up and and wait for the right time. And I think this is a really important point um, in the in the adage of do what you love. Sometimes it takes a little time to make sure that doing what you love is the best uh sustainable choice for your for being able to to take care of yourself and your family as you move forward and and do it with the greatest success, right?
1: Yes, and I had to, I had to wait it out. You know, in the meantime though, I had my side hustle. I had my suit and tie job that was definitely paying the bills, but my passion was still a connection to mm-hmm. plants and 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 encouraging and getting people excited to Add more plants to wherever they lived, and so I was doing the design and mm-hmm. the consulting because I had that knowledge, and and that was scratching my itch too. So there was a selfish component to that, but it was also keeping in, keeping the saw sharp. Yeah, and um, you know, I I just kept doing that and just believing and knowing that that I would be able to make that shift at some point. But you know, it was getting harder to just jump off the the boat any old time, which I wouldn't have done anyway, but you know, as time progressed, I now had a wife and now I had two young daughters and, you know, the bills were getting, you know, there was more responsibility than ever. And so the stakes were higher that if I was going to make a change, the stakes were pretty high and I had to, I had to be careful about that.
0: Okay. So tell us about when did you jump? What made you finally say, okay, I'm ready. I can do this. Okay. So, um, you know, along
1: all during that suit and tie business life, uh, to have as many connections in the gardening horticulture world as possible uh, you know I, I became a master Gardener to have that interaction with like-minded people and that was wonderful uh but there was a time during that period where there was a magazine editor that had started a magazine and was had an, had an idea for one of the feature columns each month of uh turf care and and so she was putting her feelers out in the master gardener universe, you know, who, who might this person be that I could maybe get to write this for me every month. And word got out and she'd heard my name from quite a few people that, Hey, there's this guy, Joe Lample that, you know, is pretty good at that. And you should reach out to him. So, you know, this is pre social media or anything like that. And I think it was an email maybe, but she asked me if I would do it. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. And before we ever met or before I ever wrote my first article for her magazine, she got a mass email from HGTV because they were reaching out because there was a new show they were going to be launching on their sister network, DIY, DIY network. And um, it was about growing food from seed Mm -hmm. to harvest. And they were looking for the host and in their mind, they had structured a description of who they were looking for and so when this mass email went out she happened to be one of the recipients and she looked at that email and she said oh my gosh this is this is joe <laughs> so so <laughs> she emailed me she said joe here's hgtv is looking for this host for this new television show and they don't know it but you're the one That's you great. need to you need to do whatever you need to do to get an interview with them Unfortunately, this job I had in the in the business world had trained me very well for calling cold calling people and getting appointments with strangers. Yeah. And so I was good at that. And I got a lunch meeting with this producer for this new future television series. And I'm telling you Jennifer, I've had a lot of lunches with strangers and I'm good at reading people and I can, I can carry a conversation, but I, this was the most awkward conversation (laughs) in lunch I'd ever had. This guy (laughs) held his cards to his chest. I had no, I could not read this guy to save my life. And, you know, he's asking me a few questions. And at the end of it, he said, all right, well, you know, I'll let you know if we're interested. I'm going to talk to my executive producer about this. And if we're interested, we'll get back Mm. to you. And I thought, okay, well, that's the last time I'm going to hear that <laughs> guy, <laughs> you know, it was fun while it lasted, which was all of 45 right. minutes. But, uh, a week later he called me and he said, Hey, we're interested. I talked to my executive producer. We want to do a, a screen test with you. And, um, we'd like to set that up with you. And so he gave me the details and told me where to be when, and sent me a, a script, uh, to memorize as I, as if I were the host of this show and it would be an opening of a show. And, you know, I got the script and the next day was going to be our, our meeting. And I felt so silly standing in front of the mirror, looking at myself, trying to right. memorize this script. I said, Ugh. so I just looked at it one time. I said, forget it. I'm just going to, I'll memorize it when I get there. And then I'll just, hopefully I, I come across. Yeah. Okay. So I show up and all the equipment's out there. The Basically the lights, the camera, the sound guys, the whole nine yards. And they put me in the position. They say, okay, go. And I said, okay. So I, I did it. It was maybe 30, 45 seconds, whatever major uh, intro right. is. And he said, okay, do it again. I said, okay. And so I did it again. He said, all right, do it again. And so this went on for like five or six, maybe seven times with zero feedback along the oh. way. I'm like, uh, how about a little something? Can it, <laughs> a more energy? I mean, what do you, help me out here, guys. But no, they just, there was not one bit of anything. And then they said, okay, all right, we got that. Let's let's go over here. And I want you to just and so here they threw me a curveball. This was not on the script. (laughs) He said, All right, now I want to see you explain to me if you were doing a soil test, teach me how to do it. And of course they're filming it and watching me on the fly, if I can, you know, pull that off. I said, Oh, all right, okay. So again, same thing, five, six, seven times over and over and over, no feedback whatsoever. And again, you know, this guy's not good with goodbyes (laughs) because it was like, All right, thanks. We'll uh we're going to meet with HGTV in a, in a week or two. We'll, we'll let you know if you know that anything yeah. comes to this. I'm like, Great. All right. <laughs> so I remember, you know, having dinner with my family like the next night or something. Well, it was fun. I had a I had a, a on screen test with a uh, HGTV for this new show, and uh, you know, I know I'm not going to get it, but it was fun to just kind of go through the motions. Anyway, fast forwarding, I get a call and they say, Hey, look, they really like you, but we've only interviewed males for this, and and they want to make sure we check everybody, so we're going to do a whole thing over with females. So that's another six weeks of time, but we're going to let you know what they decide and then you know six weeks later i get a call he says okay they've narrowed it down to one female and one male and you're the male that they like but if whatever gender they end up going with is who's going to be it and so if you're you know if they pick the male it's you so one day at lunch with another stranger doing my business deal my pager went off and uh for those who don't even know what that is um i i got you know made a call and uh, he'd left me a voicemail and said hey they picked you. So that's when it all changed in 2002 Jennifer.
0: That's such a great story Joe and you clearly are a naturally gregarious and easygoing person. Um but those those ideas of of resourcefulness and and just adapting to what's in front of you those are those are great skills and they're great skills just as a home gardener. Like we are often yeah. thrown curveballs we don't know we don't know how to handle. And, mm-hmm. and you just, you, you sometimes just have to make the most of it and, um and figure out how you want to, how you want to do your best and show up. And you go on to become this famous TV personality, Joe Gardner. How was that? And this is not, that show is not still going.
1: The interesting thing about that, it was only supposed to be one year and 26 episodes. Right. And I didn't even quit my – I didn't have to quit. Well, let me put it this way. I talked my boss into letting me stay on with my suit job because it was only going to be one year and 26 episodes. So the idea was we're going to film every other week. Well, okay, this is vegetable gardening. So – you can't leave a garden for a week and come back and everything's no, okay. You've got to be there all the time.
0: It, we're, we're speaking here in August in, in the height of vegetable season. We can't leave for a day and everything's okay. Right.
1: But, you know, these people weren't really gardeners in the in the suits of the uh, HGTV. So they didn't know. But I told them, I said, I don't think that's going to work. But anyway, they quickly had to shift their budget. And next thing you know, it's an every week, almost every, it was, it was an every day, every week thing. the whole year but we pulled off the 26 episodes but along the way the show had gone so well and keep in mind this is before really vegetable gardening even took off so it was still such so popular that they wanted to turn it into a three-year 52 episode series and then when that when the series ended to your point it ended it after three years because we ran out of food to grow in other words every episode was dedicated to one specific crop and teaching people how to grow it but but after three years and 52 episodes in hot, humid Atlanta, Georgia, we had grown everything and then some that you can even grow down there. Right. And it was successful. It really was. But uh, I had to move on because uh, that show had ended. And fortunately, I was able to – I was picked up for another PBS series on gardening, and I hosted that for three years. But you know, during that time, I – it was, it was a show that we were touring public gardens all over the country. And I I love being in a public garden or any garden as much as anybody. And my role was to just uh, have that conversation with that head horticulturalist or that person in charge of the garden. And we would walk the garden and talk about the plants. And you know the thing about it was, it was kind of a template, Jennifer, where every everywhere we went around the country, it was pretty much the same outline, but the only thing that really was changing was the physical location and the person I was interviewing. Mm-hmm. But other than that it was the same. And as much as I love plants and, and being all over the country, seeing different gardens, I was getting bored. And it wasn't because of what I was seeing. It was just, I felt like there's information that wasn't getting told mm-hmm. that was important that that somebody needed to tell. And there weren't any television shows out there at the time doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and my ethos was plants are important, but more so than that, it's, it's their relevance to the bigger picture and stewardship and, and how plants relate to people and what we can do with it. And so I left that show after three years because I, I just felt a calling to start a new series that talked about other people's stories and how they were as gardeners utilizing plants and being stewards of the land under their watch. And, it was just a bigger picture and, and I felt like somebody needed to do that show. And as, as a in front of the camera host, I didn't know anything about producing, being behind the camera or setting up a show like that, but I didn't care. I was going for it. And so I took the next year off and created the show in my mind. We shot a pilot and that became Growing a Greener World with public television and 12 seasons so far and 200 something episodes later and an Emmy along the way it's been, it's been amazing. And it's, it's been amazing.
0: It is amazing. And your work is so universally accessible. Uh, I think that's one of the things that makes it um, just a beautiful fit in this world. And and you said something about um, 2002 and vegetable gardening hadn't even really taken off yet. And we do see, like we look back over history, right? And there is this kind of, you know, sign curve of of w- when home gardeners get really engaged, at least in our country. Um, you know, and it's, it's sometimes related to the socioeconomic situation. It's sometimes related to the environmental situation. But, you know, there was like a great peak in the 70s, and then there was another peak in the 90s. And then there was another peak, again, in the early 2000s it started to build but with the the great recession of 2008 and 2009 or 7 to 9 or however however you felt that pain at that time um you know we hit a moment there and then we had this great great return to the garden by so many people uh with of course the the covid shutdown and the social justice kind of upset much needed um That just got started in 2020 until now. And and we've just seen the hunger for this knowledge just grow and deepen, haven't we?
1: Yes, we have.
0: And and
1: during that time, we've had so many more people Mm -hmm. on the, I'm hesitating on saying the word education side or the teaching side, because you know anybody can create content and pop it on youtube or mm-hmm. do a blog post about it but but not everybody is equally qualified so during that time it was amazing how the explosion of gardeners and influencers or whatever you want to call them came onto the scene and and you know there's been a lot of positive things that have come from that and, and if we can grow more gardeners cuz certainly the world needs more gardeners mm-hmm. we've we've seen that And, uh, you know, some of it stuck, you know, certainly some people have gotten back to their normal life and it, it didn't include, you know, how it was when they dove into gardening with both feet. But, um, I think, you know, there was some stickiness to it to some level, Mm -hmm. but my, my approach to that as I, as it's always been, but especially then was to make sure that people understood that It didn't have to be guesswork, you know, it, there, there was a methodology that I was thinking, how, how we can make this sustainable as a gardener so that they don't, it's not a a fatty thing, they're going to stick with it. And I utilize that time to create some online courses and, and help demystify the process mm-hmm. of gardening, because I think, you know, it can be intimidating it can be overwhelming. And a lot of people didn't know where to start and many of them blindly jumped into it. But what I wanted to do was help them take the guesswork out of mm-hmm. it, you know, take the guesswork out of gardening, as I often say, and help them understand. Yes. It's important to know the steps, the how to part of gardening, but if it's going to stick with them, And they're going to be able to apply the information. They need to understand the why do behind the Mm how-to so that they can apply that information going forward. Very much like a a chef does that walking into a pantry versus a cook who follows a recipe. They may not have the knowledge behind why the science of these different ingredients coming together works, but they still can make a, a delicious meal by following the recipe. But can they replicate that without the recipe card? Maybe not. Whereas the chef, is because of the knowledge of the why behind why those ingredients work can go into that pantry without a recipe card and create this amazing meal because they understand it just as a gardener understanding the why when they're faced with a problem in the garden or a question it sticks or they can apply what they've learned in the past going forward and that's that's where I think we really create those people that want to want to know more and want to grow more because they get it and they see the results.
0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Joe Lample is the human behind the beautifully named Joe Gardener Show, an organic gardening podcast. He is also the creator of the long-running Growing a Greener World on PBS. It is a longtime award-winning public television program in which we learn about so many people and so many gardening methodologies. We'll be back for more of our conversation with Joe right after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. This conversation with Joe Lample, his warmth and generosity of passion and knowledge, it reminds me again and again of the many lessons we, as a garden loving community, receive daily from this impulse to garden, and the lifelong relationships it grants us to the plants, the soils, and to one another in myriad configurations. Communities of people, of plants, of place. This was the theme of the session I recently chaired for the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Summit at the New York Botanical Garden this past weekend. And the importance of first recognizing the many different communities we are in fact a part of. From our families, to our colleagues, to even fellow travelers on the subway or an airplane, followed swiftly by the importance of cultivating our communities, caring for and supporting these communities, listening to these communities. The importance of all of this can't be overstated. In these times, it is in our communities and the diversity of them that we will find strength. And not just that, but also as you hear today in Joe's voice, community, literally meaning what we hold in common, this is where we find and share our joy. And that is our greatest strength. Look after each other out there in joy, gardeners. Our communities need us and together, We definitely grow better. We're back now to our conversation with Joe Lample creator and host of the Joe Gardener podcast and Growing a Greener World PBS program. He is joining us today from his home garden just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. As we come back, we hear more about Joe's history of and dedication to specifically organic gardening and its importance in our gardened world. And that building, that cultivating, if you will, of good instinct and good basic Instincts. understanding is so important. And it's clearly what what you were raised with in, in many ways, which led you to stick a branch into the soil and say, okay, that might work. Uh, even though you didn't even know that's what you were doing. You, somehow yeah. you knew to, to to at least do that so it looked like it was supposed to be growing <laughs> Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. And you know, as anybody who listens to me know knows, I I don't do a lot of the how to. Uh, I leave that to people who are better qualified for it and who are who are simply better at it. Uh, and for the most part, I'm a I'm a big believer that your your how to is best served locally and very fresh because you know every location is different, but there are. Some universal how tos that everybody needs and will benefit from, and and you are one of the very best how tos out there, that include the whys of, not necessarily you know I mean I think you include all the whys, not just the science and the if you do this then this you know is bound to happen or is best set up to happen, but also the spiritual whys and the and the the social and environmental whys, and that kind of leads me beautifully to this y- you are an organic gardener? was that always the case and 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 if it was or wasn't, um, why is that important to you and when did it become apparent that you needed to make that a part of your messaging?
1: Hmm. love that question. And I think there were two things as you were asking me that two things came to mind and I think they happened around the same time. And uh, you know, had I known, the the risk of of using chemicals uh, in excess or you know not knowing the far-reaching consequences or the ripple effects of using some of those things when in in my early days I I wouldn't have used them then but the fact is I didn't really know and when you're you're caught up in the hype and the marketing and the you know the pictures of the pretty plants if you use X Y Z and you know you don't want these bugs eating your plants yeah I was caught up in that a long time ago. But I think when I, when I owned my first home, which again is way back, you know, I was an early homeowner um, and I'm out there fertilizing my, my grass with, with synthetic grass fertilizer. And I hit a, um, I hit a root and the hopper of my spreader tipped over, it, it knocked over. And I had a full hopper of lawn fertilizer Ooh. and synthetic nitrogen. Mm. And, you know, I said, shoot. And I was, you know, I was cleaning it up because I didn't want to waste the fertilizer. You know, I was like, oh, I got to get this all up. And as best I did, there was still a residual amount that had worked its way down between the grass blades into the soil. And the next, and so that was late in the afternoon. And the next morning I looked outside where I'd spilled that fertilizer and I saw this big black circle, big black spot. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what, what happened? And I went down there and that entire area was burned, burned up. And I thought, "I well, I, I put two and two together and I realized, oh my gosh, this, you know, I couldn't even really tell there was any fertilizer left on the ground when I finally got it all cleaned up. And yet even so, look what happened. And if that happened to just the grass, what are the ripple effects and the un- unintended consequences yeah. of using any chemical, whether it's fertilizer, let alone pesticides, right. or something even worse that we don't know about until we do. And the other part of the story, and I maybe wasn't at the same time because it happened a little bit later. But but that had that was definitely something that helped me change course mm-hmm. right then. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a good job, and I was educating myself, and I was realizing a lot of the things that I was doing weren't ecologically smart, mm-hmm. and then or environmentally smart. But then. I was doing a podcast early on and I was interviewing Dr. Stephen Kress with the Audubon Society. And I still, I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts, but I remember this name in this moment. And out of curiosity, we're talking about birds. And I said, Dr. Kress, just out of curiosity, and this wasn't in my notes to ask him, but it was in the moment. And I said, do you have any idea, uh, you know, how many backyard songbirds die each year from just eating the bugs that have died from people using pesticides in their backyard? They said He said, well, actually, I do. And I'm going to give you a number that you could easily add a zero to, and it would still be probably conservative. But the number I'm going to tell you that we know is at least 7 million songbirds a year mm. die from just eating insects that have been poisoned. Mm. But as I said, add a zero to that, which would make it 70 million, and it, that would probably still be conservative. Right. And when I heard that, going back to your point, Jennifer, with my love of nature and wildlife and Anything that lives, I do not want to have anything to do with any action under my watch being responsible for anything like that to happen. Right. And that was the cold turkey moment that anything I was still doing after that first grass spill, chemical fertilizer mm-hmm. spill, nothing since then, um, under my watch is, uh, is, is going to cause anything like that to happen. So that, that was Beautiful. the total yeah. organic transformation at that point. What little bit was left? Yeah.
0: Right. And I think this is such an important story, Joe, because I think that is it is true for all of us my age. I'm late 50s. And, you know, we grew up in a time when it was absolutely part and parcel of what was being sold across the counter in the garden world, right? Like yeah. they would say, I would I was growing a little garden in Seattle, Washington, my first garden on my own, and I loved roses. Seattle's a fine place to have roses, except it it sometimes in the winter is wet. So you get a little black spot. And some very kind person at the nursery said, Oh, use this. It's a systemic and we'll feed your your roses and take care of that black spot. And I didn't think twice. I thought, okay, great. You know, and and lo and behold, I come to realize maybe a year later when I'm speaking to an organic gardener, uh, much older and wiser than me, and she made it clear that that yes, it would take care of the black spot, but it would also kill X, Y, and Z, and so those beautiful sphinx moths that were growing, you know, that were illuminating my garden in the evenings. were an insect that would be killed as a result of that food? And did I really want such perfect roses that I was willing to kill those sphinx moths? And the answer was absolutely not. Someone just had to tell me, someone had to point it out. And then the more of us who know and who make these decisions that, no, I don't need a perfect lawn if it means polluted groundwater and dead fish. And I don't need, you know, these things like we can become uncomplicit the more we 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 know and learn mm-hmm. and then share forward right with other gardeners yes, and yes. Y- you don't you can't fix the past you can only like make better decisions now and move forward as a gardener in the world
1: well said that final point i think is everything mm-hmm. because you don't know you don't know what you don't no. know and it's just a matter of learning. And we're always learning. And you can't change the past, but you you can definitely have an impact going forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, for for me, that's one of the great joys of knowing there are the, the great number of high caliber garden communicators out there doing this teaching and amplifying and sharing. And it might seem like sometimes we're in a bubble and we're just talking to each other. Um, it's not, it, you know, I can look down and people have heard me say this. I can look down my suburban street and know that we we have so many people still to reach. And um, there are a lot of people we can still inoculate with this love of environmentally and so, so beautifully satisfying garden love.
1: Mm. Yes, uh that is that um what drives me, what wakes me up in the morning and it, what it it just excites me every day. Um that's what it's all about. We we need like I said the world needs more gardeners and I love your term inoculating them to to uh to to be one.
0: Yeah. So I think people will will understand from the conversation so far that you actually have uh educational platforms of of variety of um, expressions. Will you round up for people where they can find the different versions and examples of, of what you do as Joe Gardner?
1: We talked about the television series growing a greener world and you know, we're making the 12 seasons, which I said was 200 and something episodes available on our YouTube channel. We've been very remiss in having the time to get everything uploaded to our YouTube channel which is ggw tv uh but we're doing that now and we'll be having entire seasons up there Great. so that's the first thing Great. and that's uh there's also on your local public television station but each station is different so i can't just tell you it comes on saturday morning at 9 a.m mm-hmm. wherever you live right. because that's not how public no. television works so there's that and then the podcast the joe gardner show is really a, an opportunity for me to have conversations with people like you and and just help inform the world about important topics over a wide spectrum of issues related to gardening, organic gardening, environmental stewardship and so forth. So, you know, six years in and 300 something episodes later and going strong. So there's that. And then the online courses is through something that happened, but we started that before COVID ever hit. I think in 2018, we wanted to do online courses for people who wanted more of a deeper dive into specific gardening content so the Online Garden Academy was born, and we started with our first course, Beginning Gardener Fundamentals, and five or six or maybe seven courses later, and more content constantly in development, we've got quite a platform for online education That's that we proudly have thousands of students in. It's something I take great pride and joy in and love interacting with our students there. And uh, and then, of course, all the different social media platforms. I You know, it's exhausting the the many places you can try to keep up and you know we do what we can we do what we
0: can yes yes now <laughs> yeah tell us about your team because of course like yeah. this as you say is exhausting but it's it's a mission and you are dedicated to it and it's got its own infrastructure. Who are your team um that help bring Joe Gardner out into the world? I could not possibly do a fraction
1: of what I'm able to do without my team and I have I'm so proud of the five or six core people that I have uh, certainly there's there's more but the people that I interact with every day Amy Prentice is my uh marketing and communications director and pretty much drives the ship I'm honestly I feel like I work for her and and gladly so because she wears so many hats and uh interesting that we just met online through Instagram one day because I think I commented on a I was following her for whatever reason. There are lots of reasons for that. But I, I saw a picture that she sent submitted of a butterfly in her garden. And I just loved it and commented. And that sparked a dialogue. And next thing, I know we stayed in touch. And a few years later, I hired her. And now she just pretty much runs the company. And and Christine works with Amy and me and and does a lot of the administrative and customer service work. And Carl Pennington is my director of photography. so any any television filming that you ever see with me or videos for the most part are done with Carl. We've been working together for over twenty years. And, uh, you know, we're brothers, really. We feel like brothers. and And we've got a couple writers. Brendan O'Reilly is our primary writer. And with all the content that we're creating, we need help for that. and uh, and he's there for that. And Todd Brock is another of my writers. He's so talented. And then Toby McDaniel's my farm manager, and um, you know it's nice to have help out here, <laughs> and and it's forever. It was me. You know, people wanted to know, well, you know, how many people do you have working out in your garden? And I, I well, I don't have anybody. It's just <laughs> me. And um and and although I didn't mind it because I love gardening so much, it it is overwhelming, and there are weeds, and you know, there's work to be done, and de- running a company or companies during the week doesn't allow for the gardener to get out there as often as is needed. But um, Toby came on the scene a few years ago and she's, she's been a lifesaver. Oh, that's so great. that's my core team. I love
0: it. And and I think it's, imp- I, again, I think that's an important model is to understand that, um, yeah, we, we never do what we do alone, even if we think we do. And especially as gardeners, like it, we are never alone, even even when we are the only human there we are working with, uh, the great beneficence of, uh, mother nature and the weather <laughs> and everything else. So oh, yeah. tell us about the farm. Tell us about where, where you live and are based and where you garden, because clearly all of your passion is, is grounded in that, yeah. Joe. It is.
1: It is. For 12 years, I've, uh, I've always lived after, after graduating, I, I moved to Atlanta and, uh, Loved it and love living here. I live. North of downtown Atlanta by about thirty miles, north northeast of downtown. So in a in a city called Alpharetta, and I have five acres. I'm fortunate in the area that I live in. It's very equestrian, and so people all around us have land, and I I have five acres. Fortunately, and we have horses, so they they get half the property. Our three horses, and uh, and I also enjoy a, a heavily wooded property. So there's a lot of tree canopy, which I love, and then there's a little bit of area that has enough sun so that i can have a, a large raised bed garden and i say large it's about 75 feet wide and maybe 45 feet um deep and they're in that picket fence garden or split rail fence garden there are 16 raised beds and um that's where the magic happens with the food growing yeah. for the most part yeah. and and then outside of that you know i have uh rivers of, of turf in between my Native plant landscape beds for the most part, mm. and the challenge that I have, Jennifer, is the deer. Uh, you know, like many people, yeah. we have more than our share that actually think that they own this property and they let us inhabit it. Sort of, but as um, long as you grow sort food of. for them, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but just the way I've designed the garden and the fence around it, which isn't high, the deer, knock on wood, have never breached the garden they've never come in but maybe that's because they have access to everything else so it's funny you know i i've got wonderful beds and a lot of native plants that never really get a chance to strut their stuff because they they do get eaten down for the most part and it's because this stubborn gardener right here doesn't um doesn't like having a deer fence and and still doesn't have a deer fence and so i've got to i've got to reconcile that and at some point do something about that. If I'm going to have a a full-fledged native plant garden with plants that actually growing, uh, I need to, I need to do that. But that's, that's the essence of where I live. And, and I, I'm really, I just love, I love the area. It's, you know, I can, I can be at a store that I need to be at any, any store you can name is probably seven minutes away. But when I'm here, I feel like I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Nice. Best of both worlds. Nice.
0: nice. And I love that. I mean, I know, <clears throat> again it's a balance um the pressure of deer in suburban and exurban places are it, it's it's very real as well as you know raccoons and uh, other issues yeah. but to yeah. try and figure out a way to allow you know some balance is is um i think it's going to be more and more important as we continue um because of migration patterns and wildlife uh necessities and but I digress. So, and I love the, the the fact that you are working with natives in your um, more ornamental rather than than food beds. And I think that again is an important model and uh, joy to cultivate in our world. When you think about, and you've shared so much of this already, Joe. But when you think about you know, how you have evolved as a gardener and how what you share and how you share has grown and, and propagated itself. Um, and you look forward another 10 years, you think about your daughters, you think about their children and you, and you think about your greatest hopes for, for where the gardening world is headed and how you can be part of it. Are there things you would add to that?
1: Yes. I think about this, Jennifer. I think about it a lot. Um, you know, it concerns me, and yet I'm hopeful. And I'm hopeful because I feel like more people than ever, and the Doug Tallamys of the world, and, and you know, are stressing the stressing the importance of what we can do with whatever little bit of land or area we have under our control. And and that is my my hope is that the momentum continues in that area. And I feel like it is, you know, with having the perspective over three decades of seeing where we've been and where we are, I'm hopeful and fearful at the same time. And I'm fearful because we are dealing with a lot of habitat destruction and deforestation and urban sprawl, and and that's scary. And we're dealing with restrictive HOAs and, and archaic covenants and restrictions that mandate turf over the opportunity for a homeowner to install native plants to attract wildlife. And, and I want that to change. And I hope that it does. And, and we need to be more proactive in how we're able to make that happen. I understand the reasons for some of these covenants and restrictions, but they are antiquated and times are changing. And in the face of climate change, there is it, it can't happen soon enough. And so I'm hoping that through my continued messaging and my adapting to change and how I get that message across, whatever that may be, and others helping doing the same thing, more people will be gardening, not just for themselves, as has has pretty much been the rule for so long in the past. But now we can have the opportunity to have a beautiful place and and meet those needs that we have selfishly, or that's probably the wrong word, but just that, but more so garden so that we are promoting safe habitats and healthy ecosystems such that it's a win-win. We can have it both ways, but we need to be conscious of that. And that's my hope and and my mission. I mean, that's that's what I'll be doing until I can.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I like I like that a lot. And yes, I think I think it is. I think the momentum is growing. And I too am very very hopeful. Um, and uh, when you put together all the different voices uh, expressing in their own places in their own ways, these same hopes and modeling the same knowledge and shared methodologies and resources, uh, uh, you know, the the stronger the network gets, and um, and the more of us there are. Ah, oh, now, final question: If you had to live on a desert island, not necessarily in Alpharetta, but somewhere, and you <laughs> live in a very, a very agreeable climate in many ways, um, mm. although many of my very favorite dry-loving plants would be sad in Alpharetta. Um, yeah. If you had to live on a desert island that had all the climates possible, and you only had mm. five plants to grow. And it, mm. of course, it could be a family if you want. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just yeah. one species. Okay. What would those five plants be, Joe, and and why? Mm.
1: Okay. Yes. All right. So I'm on a desert island, so I'm by myself probably. And so I can be a little more selfish here. <laughs> <than> I can, <laughs> and I can think of what I really love. And yet some of these, ironically, are, or maybe not ironically, are also sustaining to a lot of wildlife. So the first one I've always loved oak leaf hydrangea Mm. hydrangea corsifolia. i love it as a four season plant i love the beauty of the panicles in the summertime i love the vibrant red foliage and the large leaves Mm. in the fall i love the exfoliating bark or the the texture of the bark in the wintertime and and i love that it's a native plant and um it's just i never get tired of it i'd have more around the property if the deer didn't eat them down lord knows i've planted a lot of them in my day but that's one um i would oak trees an oak tree maybe a white oak for me a corcus alba um just because we know or hopefully we know and if we don't oak trees are the number one tree for sustaining the largest amount of wildlife and it's important that we promote and grow our oak trees and they are also beautiful it's funny i started off our conversation earlier today jennifer talking about those talking live about oaks talking about the beautiful yeah. majestic oaks down in florida yeah. and and they really are beautiful and there are so many types of oaks and and they all have great ecological value beyond their aesthetic so i i would have a nice oak tree on that desert island to sit under and enjoy and watch the wildlife come and then um uh, father gilla a shrub that i love is a uh, fathergilla my variety favorite is mount airy fathergilla uh, fathergilla gardenia i think and it's um you know it's it's again i'm i'm loving the natural form i i'm one who likes more of a looser more natural form than a tight upright form mm-hmm. and fathergilla is that and then and then it too has amazing full it's kind of a kaleidoscope of color in the fall and it, it doesn't get overly big, depending on the variety that you get. It can get two to four feet maybe, and same with its width. But it's a beautiful foundation landscape plant. And if you're going for a native, it is one of the most beautiful ones I can think of. So there's that. Um, I love native azaleas. And I have a few favorites, but I'll pick one. Um, let's see, plum leaf azalea. And that would be rhododendron, rhododendron, rhododendron prunifolium would be the yeah and uh, it's got orange foliage and a in a in a fragrance
0: that will knock you off right out right the, the the native azaleas are so so much more likely to be fragrant in my experience right
1: yes absolutely yes
0: yeah they are here in the west also yeah
1: they are yeah. oh yeah. yeah and so to have those blooming in spring and summer and and just
0: ugh
1: can't say enough about them and then the last one would be um and this would be a broad category but i just love japanese maples Acer anything it's japanese maple um just the form the leaf structure the pomatums uh the the colors i mean you can get red foliage in the middle of the summer depending on the varieties that you're going with so you don't have to wait until fall to get the color if that's your thing and uh they're just a they, they're a great specimen tree they can be diminutive or they can be large, and it's just there's so many that I love them all. Right. So I think that's
0: five, maybe. I think that's five, five but I'm a, yeah. I'm a little worried that you're going to be really hungry, Joe. <laughs> okay, I can give you some edibles. And I think I you better give us down as a as a well known edible yeah. edible gardener. I think you ought to give us one or two edibles, Joe.
1: Okay, I, I'm going to do that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I. I can't not put tomatoes on my list. First of all, because I love eating tomatoes uh, in spite of the fact that they are not contrary to, I don't know if people think they're easy to grow or hard to grow, but here in the Southeast where it's hot and humid, they're hard to grow out to maturity without pests and diseases. Mm -hmm. But tomatoes are a must. And then kale, I just love kale, not only for how it tastes in salads and stir fries, but in how it looks in the garden. Same thing with broccoli. I don't know that there's anything I love more than fresh eating of broccoli. And I'm talking about raw dipped in a little something and just snacking on that uh, ahead of a meal or something. And then peas, my preference is snow peas or sugar snaps. Uh, Not many of them make it out of the garden before I've finished them off for the day. And then beets. I have a real love for beets. I love the earthiness. Unlike, you know, a lot of people, I love the earthiness, flavor of the beet, the texture and in the garden, it's one of the most beautiful ornamental edible plants you can grow. Yeah.
0: Okay, that rounded it out nicely. So now Perfect. now I feel comfortable that you are not only going to have <laughs> shade and wildlife friends, but you're also going to have some food to eat. And, and most of those reseed, you, you can develop the seed pretty reliably so you will sustain yourself. It has been great fun to talk with you and I just thank you for for your work and um, for being this perennial and persistent voice uh, advocating for gardening and gardening done really well, Joe.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It really is. And thank you for having me, Jennifer. It's been an honor.
0: Joe Lample is the man and the gardener behind the beloved Joe Gardner Show podcast. He is also the founder and host of Growing a Greener World on PBS. Growing a Greener World is not just a show name, but a nearly lifelong mission for Joe. Head on over to cultivatingplace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab there to this week's show notes where you will find all the ways you can connect with Joe and find out more about his communicating and education work. Join us again next week when we return to the artistry, but also the activism of our plant loving and garden growing lives in conversation with Chicago based artist Ollie Costello. Their remarkable colors and forms and interconnections from the life of the soil and earth to the many, many stars in our galaxied night skies. Ollie draws us back together from the universe from which we too are formed and to which we will return. That's next week, right here. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for all that you do to support this growing work. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Ángel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doolist Transcription, and communications support from Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.